Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'm Jane Winter, Account Director from Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you are listening. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to us today. So do you have patients who experience symptoms of digestive discomfort after consuming dairy? Patients who struggle to digest dairy could be lactose intolerant, or maybe they could be experiencing sensitivity to a type of protein found in cow's milk called A1 protein. This month, February, is Gut Health Month, a national month to talk about common gut problems and the nutrition interventions that can help our patients feel better. In today's podcast, we're talking to Andrea Hardy, and we're going to explore the different reasons why dairy might cause digestive distress and what you can suggest doing about it. The good news is that there can be options that you could try for these patients which don't necessarily involve cutting out dairy altogether. Andrea Hardy is a registered dietitian and is joining us today from Canada, where she's one of the leading gut health experts. Having endured her own journey with an IBS diagnosis, Andrea is on a mission to communicate credible scientific information about nutrition, gut health and digestive disorders in a way that's easy to consume and inspires sustainable action. Our podcast today is supported by the A2 Milk Company. And just a disclaimer, this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. The podcast is for your information only, and we advise you to exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. Okay, so let's jump into it. Thanks very much for joining me today, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. So just uh, to get started um, and for our listeners to get to know a bit about you, can you just share your story so far, how you came to be sort of leading gut health dietitian in Canada? Sure. So when I started as a dietitian, I was actually working predominantly in oncology as well as uh, in the CVICU and in liver disease. And uh, I always loved diving into the research. And so I was diagnosed with IBS uh, when I first became a dietitian. And I was always keeping on top of the literature. And my colleagues, even though I wasn't working in that area, would come to me with questions about irritable bowel syndrome, uh, especially because the low FODMAP diet was just starting to be published about at that time and asked me a lot of questions. And so, well, I got my start in acute care. When I moved to a different city, I decided to start a private practice. And I knew that I had this special skill set in digestive health um, from my previous acute care background because the gut is involved in a lot of disease states, but also from my personal experience with IBS. 
And so I decided to uh, take focus on working specifically with digestive disorders and just got connected with gastroenterologists and physicians in the community and really started um, building a name for dietitians and the role dietitians play in helping to manage digestive disorders. And so that's really how I I built my reputation uh, as a gut health dietitian here in Canada. So I guess that means you're seeing a full spectrum of, of digestive disorders, um, a whole range of different conditions, diseases, intolerances. Is that right? Absolutely. So we definitely do see a lot of functional gut disorders at in our clinic, uh, but we do also see inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, eosinophilic esophagitis, um, kind of a whole, whole spectrum of digestive disorders. Yep, that pretty much covers from one end to the other, doesn't it? It really um, does. So if we think about um, dairy products, there are multiple reasons why a person might not tolerate dairy products. Um, what are some of the common sort of conditions um, and how are they confirmed or, or diagnosed? Yes, yeah, so one of the uh, most heard about, of course, is lactose intolerance. And so lactose intolerance is really uh, occurs when a person has the inability to digest the sugar that naturally occurs in dairy called lactose. Um, and this is because they might not pr produce enough of the enzyme called lactase. And so lactase breaks down uh, lactose and makes it easy for your intestines to absorb. Uh, with lactose intolerance, they aren't able to do that as effectively because the enzyme has dropped. And so it makes its way through it, through the bowels and then ferments in the colon, which can cause abdominal pain and bloating, gas, as well as diarrhea. Uh, with lactose intolerance, uh, most of the time here in Canada anyways, most people self-diagnose through trial and error with dairy. However, there are validated tests uh, in which a person could uh, get tested for lactose intolerance. And so typically here in Canada, this includes a breath test where you would drink a lactose substrate, and then they would measure the production of fermentation um, of the lactose. Uh, or there's also a blood test, so measuring how much uh, blood sugar response there is uh, when you consume that lactose substrate. A lot of times those tests aren't used that often. Um, a lot of times people are diagnosed via their doctor when they report that they struggle when they consume dairy. And you certainly hear commonly, whether it's from patients or just friends or family or people that you talk to, a lot of people talked about lactose intolerance, that they are lactose intolerant. But can you just um, sort of share with us what the actual prevalence of lactose intolerance is um, and what's the difference between being diagnosed as lactose intolerant or being a lactose maldigester? Right. And so this is why we see uh, less testing actually here in Canada, because there is a difference between lactose maldigestion versus lactose intolerance. And so about 75% of the population maldigests lactose. Oh, but what's wow. important to know, yeah, it's quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Uh, and this can be, you know, some people have more challenges digesting it than others, just depending on how much enzyme they produce. Um, but maldigestion doesn't actually mean intolerance. And this is because the undigested lactose that makes its way to the colon doesn't necessarily cause symptoms in everyone. And it actually has some prebiotic-like effects in the colon. So it gets fermented by gut bacteria. And some people don't notice it at all. 
being a problem, whereas other people will have more digestive symptoms with that. And so most individuals can tolerate about four to seven grams of lactose in a sitting, no problem, even if they're lactose intolerant. That's what the research suggests. And so um, some people can tolerate small amounts of dairy or milk. And then uh, as they get into higher portions, that's when they start to see symptoms. So um, when people come to see you with um, that sort of... uh, what they consider a lactose intolerance, then you go on to assess their diet more fully? or Yeah, absolutely. So we want to take a look at uh, what sorts of foods they believe to be triggering their symptoms and really see, you know, how much lactose are they consuming and does it correlate with when they experience their digestive symptoms? Um, because a lot of times people are like, oh, well, Andrea, I get so um, so much GI upset when I consume uh, ice cream or lots of hard cheeses. And right away, I'm like, oh, that's interesting because those foods are actually lower in lactose. So is it really the lactose or is there something else going on? And so interestingly, of course, those are some really delicious foods. Uh, people tend to consume larger portions yeah. of them in a sitting. And uh, sometimes even the fat in those foods can trigger digestive symptoms because fat can alter uh, gas clearance in in the bowels and contribute to some of that digestive distress too. So sometimes it's not dairy or lactose at all. It could be the fat in that dairy. I also read that a reason for sort of digestive distress can be this A1 protein that's in regular cow's milk. Can you just explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a lot of exciting research coming out now, uh, looking at the role A1 protein has in um, causing digestive distress in some individuals. And so A1 protein is the type of protein that's found in regular cow's milk. And so A1 beta casein is a protein that's naturally produced by some cows with a specific genetic variant. And most regular cow's milk on the shelves is a mix of A1 protein and then A2 protein. And so research is suggesting that A2 protein might actually be easier on digestion than A1 protein for some people. In fact, uh, results from a recent study out of the U.S. suggest that switching from regular milk to milk containing only the A2 protein may contribute to a reduced um, symptom, may contribute to reduced symptoms of digestive discomfort. So things like abdominal pain, bloating, and diarrhea in some patients who have reported difficulties drinking milk. So lots of patients often ask me, you know, is there a test that I can take to see, does A1 protein bother my guts? Um, But the fact is at this point, we just don't have a diagnostic test to assess someone's tolerance of the A1 protein, but we can assess it with trial and error. So just you you mentioned on some of the symptoms that people suffer when they talk about digestive discomfort or reactions that they think uh, might be related to dairy. Um, And we know that those digestive symptoms can be really debilitating for patients. Can you just describe a bit more about some of the symptoms that that patients do have to, uh, that are enduring and and trying to cope with? Yeah, so... I think this is one of the reasons why I became so passionate about working in digestive disorders is people, their quality of life is so impacted by their digestive distress. And there's so many things from a nutrition perspective we can do to help improve their gut symptoms. And so patients may struggle with 
uh, abdominal pain. They might have bloating and distension. They might have diarrhea or they might have constipation. Um, and a lot of times this impacts their ability to go about their day to day. So I see a lot of patients, for example, that might have to wake up an hour early just to make sure that they go to the bathroom before they get in the car to go to work. Because if they get in the car and there's a traffic jam, they're worried about not making it to the bathroom because they have so much urgency or diarrhea. Uh, or patients that are worried about travel or going on hikes because there might not be a bathroom around. And so what I see is a lot of times patients are planning their lives around, you know, their bowel habits and what's going on with their guts. And it can really take the focus off of actually living a full life. So it's not actually not necessarily um, directly after they've eaten the food that they're concerned about. It can actually be just sort of cumulative so that over the course of a day, their their lives are uh, dictated by their digestive symptoms. Is that right? It's not exactly. necessarily straight after a food. Yeah. Absolutely. It can take 24 to 48 hours and then you can have symptoms that that persist for a period of time after that. So sometimes it's really hard to pinpoint what is actually causing the digestive distress. Yeah. So so what are the sort of the, some of the key interventions that dietitians can use for their patients who aren't tolerating dairy products? Yeah. So with all counseling, it really depends on a person's uh, symptoms, their goals and preferences, what sorts of foods they want to include in their diet versus uh, what they're comfortable kind of adding in or taking away. Uh, but a few simple ones would be, for example, if we suspect lactose intolerance to trial a low lactose diet. And so this isn't a dairy-free diet, rather it's making sure that we choose dairy foods that are lower in lactose. Uh, another intervention would be to trial removing regular cow's milk uh, that contains that A1 protein and then switch it for milk that it contains exclusively the A2 protein. And then that way we can see, is it A1 protein contributing to their digestive distress? Yeah, so it's it's a surprisingly complex area, isn't it, really? Like, it's not just a case of cut out your lactose and it'll all be good, you're, you're fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we could just, because it is a little more complex than it first seems, can we just unpack a little bit again that lactose maldigestion versus sensitivity to milk protein? And can you just remind us here the differences here and, and the physiology? Right. So lactose maldigestion is that inability to break down lactose, which is the sugar found in dairy. Um, and then that lactose makes its way to the colon, fermenting and causing digestive distress. And so this can be dose dependent, like we had mentioned, whereas sensitivity to milk protein is a bit different. So as mentioned, cows can naturally produce the A1 beta casein or A2 beta casein, or both A1 and A2 proteins. And um, it really just depends on their genetics. Uh, when humans ingest that A1 protein, it's broken down differently due to just one amino acid difference between the A1 and A2 proteins. And so one of the peptides that's preferentially produced in the digestion of A1 protein uh, due to this amino acid difference is called beta casomorphin 7 or BCM7. And in research, BCM7 is thought to be a potential driver of that A1 protein sensitivity. So in some animal models, we've actually seen BCM7 alter gut motility, gut secretions, and induce an inflammatory response. And so this is thought to be potentially the reason why some patients tolerate A2-containing 
milk better than a one containing milk. Oh, that's so interesting. And so you mentioned uh, just before um, some research that's been done uh, on lactose intolerance versus sort of A1 sensitivity. Um, what are some of the findings? I want to put you on the spot of having to recite a whole research paper, but can you just sort of recap um, some of that research about looking at A1 versus A2 in the milk? Sure. So there has been uh, several studies looking at the impacts of A1 protein on digestion. And in a recent study, uh, we looked at 33 American adults who were lactose maldigesters, and 25 of those were verified lactose intolerant. And so researchers found that there were overall fewer symptoms um, amongst the study population as a whole, despite the milk containing the same amount of lactose. And so this included symptoms like abdominal pain, bloating, gas, and diarrhea. And so this is generally consistent with the findings in similar studies and suggests that A1 protein may be a potential contributor to digestive discomfort symptoms for patients who have troubles drinking milk. Interestingly, this does reflect what I see in practice. So some patients believe they have a lactose intolerance and may still respond well after switching from regular cow's milk to milk with only the A2 protein, notwithstanding that it still contains lactose. And so I think it's important as a clinician to consider that both lactose intolerance and A1 protein sensitivity can be potential contributors to digestive distress in our patients. So it just gives us that little something extra to think about when we're working with patients who report that dairy causes them digestive distress. Yeah, and it's nice to see some of that being conducted in a research setting because it gives us something a little stronger to go to trial and error with uh, when we're talking to our patients. So when, when your a patient arrives to see you and they tell you that uh, they feel that dairy is a major contributor to their symptoms, can you step us through the process that you go through with them? Sure. So again, it really depends on the patient and their diagnosis and their symptoms and their goals too. So they might say, you know, I really do want to include dairy. How can I do that? And so if dairy is suspected, we could either start with a trial of A2 only milk, or we could do a trial of a low lactose containing diet, keeping dairy in, uh, but choosing products that are naturally lactose free or naturally low in lactose. And if we're trialing the A2 only milk, I might consider using lactase alongside this if lactose intolerance is confirmed or suspected. And so that way it kind of takes out that confounding var variable for patients if they also believe that they have a lactose intolerance. And I imagine that patients are pretty um, keen to give this sort of trial a go because, as you say, dairy products are delicious. <laughs> there are so many things that you miss out on if you have to remove dairy from your diet, not to mention the nutrients that you're missing out on um, that are carried in, in dairy products. So I imagine they're quite um, keen to give any of these trials a go. Yeah, you know, what's funny is I recently had to do a short trial of removing dairy from my diet because my son says cow's milk protein allergy. Oh. And it was so hard because <laughs> I, I consume a lot of dairy and uh, I, I was so excited when I could add it back in. So, <laughs> You'll have to suffer through your allergy, son. I need my dairy. Um, yeah. So in terms of let's talk about uh, introducing A2 milk uh, to a patient. 
when you're introducing it, what are the steps that you walk them through to determine their tolerance to that, that milk? Yeah, so we don't have any specific research on the best way to do this, but something that I found really practical in practice is I typically start with half a cup daily for a few days. And the reason for this is, is um, when we start with that lower amount, we know that most individuals that have lactose intolerance tolerate about four to seven grams of lactose acidic. So starting with half a cup uh, reduces the risk of results being confounded by that lactose intolerance. And so once we've seen that they tolerate that half a cup for a few days, then we'd progress to uh, the amount that they would usually take in a sitting. So for most people, that's one cup that might be in their cereal or their latte. Um, but then we kind of work our way up from there. Um, and again, if a person is confirmed lactose intolerant, I would consider using lactase enzymes alongside that trial uh, because it could potentially be a concurrent issue too. So if you have a patient who uh, successfully introduces A2 milk into their diet, they find that the digestive symptoms are relieved, can they, And you've, but you've only started with half a cup, do you find generally that they can work their way up to having normal serves through the day just like anyone else does for dairy yeah that's what i that's what i found actually is patients that have identified um that uh, a1 protein is a problem they're really surprised that they're able to consume larger amounts of of milk yeah when they're able to tolerate those larger portions they're just able to have a little bit more liberalization of their diet and better quality of life which is our goal so then what does that mean for other dairy products? Like if, if you've decided that they tolerate A2 milk well, but then they want cheese or yogurt or other dairy products, how do they go about that? Right. So you can find products that are exclusively made with A2 milk, but you have to seek them out. So here in Calgary, where I live, in my local farmer's market, for example, there is a small producer that does produce uh, A2 protein dairy products. And I actually have had patients um, use A2 milk in making things like yogurt before. Uh, so that's something very simple that they can do at home. And uh, some of my patients have always traditionally made yogurt in their home. So it's an easy swap out uh, of traditional cow's milk for that A2 milk when they make their yogurts. Yeah. So still working on those, extending it to those other dairy products at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very hard to find. I, I, I haven't seen too much of it out there yet. So yeah. fingers crossed it's coming. Well, maybe with uh, COVID lockdown, people have had a lot more time to experiment with making their own alternate dairy products. Right. I bought a cheese kit and it's still <laughs> sitting in my pantry. I still haven't made cheese. <laughs> it's on my <laughs> list of things to try though. <laughs> Best intentions. Um, so if for dietitians uh, who might be listening today, what are the sort of really key points that you think they should take away from this conversation? Yeah, so working with patients uh, as a digestive health dietitian, a lot of times patients will self-identify as lactose intolerant. And so really getting into the nitty gritty of what they feel causes their symptoms and kind of working through trialing different things to see, is it lactose intolerance? Is it, you know, intolerance to consuming large amounts of fat if they're eating ice cream or cheese in large portions and that's when they have the symptoms? Or could it really be this A1 protein sensitivity? 
And so when you clinically assess patients, you do want to keep all of these things on the radar and um, consider how it might fit into your patient's digestive puzzle and how you can help get them the best quality of life and the most liberal diet. Well, I think the dietitians listening to us today who work in this area and probably those that even don't work in this area uh, will have found your tips really helpful. We will also put links to um, the studies um, in our show notes uh, so anyone who wants to um, follow up on reading those and some of the other resources uh, about um, dairy intolerance. Thanks so much for your time today Andrea from Canada. Uh, it's morning for us in Australia, me in Australia, evening for you um, but really appreciate your time and your tips um, and of course, remember that a dietitian is the person that can provide personalised help for managing digestive symptoms. So thanks again to the A2 Milk Company for supporting our podcast. And thanks very much, Andrea, for your time. Thank you. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.